Would you please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40? As you're finding your spot, would you please stand? This is the word of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up And every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at Isaiah 40 through 55, we pray that the glory that is yours would truly be revealed to us, that we would see it together. I pray that you would help me uh, to bring clarity to these chapters so that we might read these these words that you have preserved for more than 2,700 years, that we would see Jesus Christ and the gospel and your salvation. Glorify yourself and build up your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This is a very well-known passage. It's quoted at the very beginning of every single gospel. So the Holy Spirit, when when he worked through the evangelists, decided that he, he wanted to begin his story of the gospel with Isaiah 40. And so we know that verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, is applied to who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the ultimate fulfillment of what we just read. All four gospels say so. In John's gospel, the Baptist identifies himself as the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 43, which shows us that this isn't just later in history when the Holy Spirit was working through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They say, oh yeah, that fits. This this was the foundation of John's self-understanding. This was the foundation of John's understanding of his mission 
the reason that he was living. This was what God had called him to do. And, and then, therefore, this was the foundation of John's understanding of who Jesus was. What then did John and the four gospel writers mean when they said that John was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40? It's so easy to just parachute in. Oh yeah, John, there's a voice in the wilderness. John's in the wilderness. Yes, uh, Jesus is the Lord. Make a way for him. And we can easily just rip it out of the book of Isaiah and say, well, it, it fits because these verses can be made to fit. But it, that's the exact opposite way around. The history of our gospel and the way it has unfolded is told to us 700 years before John lived, 700 years before Jesus lived. And they were fulfilling the gospel according to Isaiah. In order to understand how this all fits together, we have to go back and take a big look uh, as we're going through this mountain range of the book of Isaiah and remind ourselves of where we've been and then we're going to take another step forward into another uh, part of this range. We started a couple of days ago in chapters one through six. And in chapters one through six, that's the introduction. I just want to move to the next slide. And in these chapters, we get the present reality of God's people. They're sinful, corrupt, rebellious, they've broken covenant with God. Therefore, they deserve to be judged. We get a lot of that in those chapters. But there's this promised reality that God is going to make them holy, a light to the nations, that they will be, through Israel, God will bring salvation into the world. How are we gonna get from here to there? That's what the book of Isaiah is all about. Yesterday, we took a look at the second major section in the book, which is the longest and the most difficult, which is chapters 7 through 39. And in these chapters, the major issue is trust. Who are you going to trust? How is, our, how is God going to take his people from their present reality to the promised reality where they're going to have to trust him to take them there? And if they don't trust him, he's going to refine them as by fire. We didn't have time to get into this too much, but at the end, I did mention it. I just want to underscore it because it's really important for today. At the end of chapter 39, what we are told is they have failed the test. Will Israel, will Judah trust their God? At the end of that section, 7 to 39, the answer comes back a resounding no. No, which is devastating news. It means that God has to bring about all of his curses that he promised that he would if they broke covenant with him. If they failed to trust him, he would curse them. Climactically, he would curse them by taking them into exile. He brought them into the land. So long as they kept covenant, they could stay in the land. Once they broke covenant, he would remove them from the land. And that's what we hear at the end of chapter 39. The day is coming, says God through Isaiah to Hezekiah, when your descendants will be carried away to Babylon. Because you don't trust me. We made much of how Hezekiah then cannot be Emmanuel, this promised king who would trust and lead the nation to trust. 
And so now we come to the chapters that we're looking at today, 40 to 55. And Isaiah is writing to a people 150 years into the future. He's writing to a people who are sitting in exile in Babylon. And if you don't know that, these chapters will make no sense. Comfort, comfort my people. The the original audience for this prophecy are Jews sitting in Babylon wondering, does God still love us? Comfort, comfort my people. Your warfare is over. That's what we're going to look at. Fourth major section, which is tomorrow, is chapters 56 through 66. And this presupposes the deliverance of God's people out of Babylon. They're back in Jerusalem for these last chapters. And the question is, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to go back to their old ways? And if they do go back to their old ways, what's God going to do? That's tomorrow. Today, we're looking at the third major section of four This major section can be divided into two major parts. So after yesterday, this should come as a huge relief. There's only two major parts to this section. The first part is in uh, chapters 40 through 48. And, And these chapters are kind of like a plateau in the mountain range. They're important, but they're not the major point of the book. Uh, These chapters deal primarily with a historical reality. We're going to get into it more deeply, but just in brief, bringing God's people out of Babylon. So it's sort of like a plateau. They do work as a metaphor for us because we are all born in exile from God. Do you realize that? That ever since Adam and Eve took the fruit against God's will and ate it, they corrupted us, they enslaved us to sin, and they also exiled us from God. And so we, as as human beings, should be able to relate to the Jews who are sitting in Babylon because their historical reality is just a picture of the human condition since the fall in the garden. And so the question for humanity is the same as the question for the Jews sitting in Babylon. Does God still love us? And when you're talking, when you're bearing witness to your unsaved loved ones or strangers or coworkers or whomever uh, comes across your path, you're talking to people in exile from God. And the question is, does God still love them? In one sense, absolutely he does. And a remnant of those who are in exile will be delivered. I'm getting ahead of myself. Second major section in this, or second subsection in this major section is a beautiful peak. It's not as high as the peak we saw yesterday. Remember that mountain of trust? And the the summit of that mountain was chapters 24 through 27. And I said yesterday that that was the highest peak in the book of Isaiah. This peak in the mountain range is not as high. And, And the only reason for this is that chapters 49 through 55 focus on the first coming of Christ. Chapters 24 through 27 yesterday focus on the second coming of Christ. And so again, remember, this is not a linear book. You can't just sort of read it from beginning to end and hope that it unfolds in some easy, natural 
uh, chronological sequence. We've already been to the second coming of Christ, and now, today, in chapters 49 through 55, Isaiah is going to give us some promises about a Messiah who will come and die to bring people out of exile. Let's take a look at these sections. Let's start on the plateau of Isaiah 40 through 48. Now, there's a major theme in these chapters that I I have no time to give any attention to, but I want to note it for you. Oh, yeah, I missed that. There is a peak that is brought back. Thank you. There is a peak that is brought back in chapter 42, 1 to 9, really goes with chapters 49 through 55. We'll talk about why it's pulled back to the beginning of these chapters as we get to it. In, in these first nine chapters, there is a major theme that I don't have any time to get into, but I want to note it for you. And several times, God brings the idols, the foreign idols of the nations, to court. And he says, who are these idols? They, they are nothing compared to me. Can any of them do anything at all? I am the only God that can do anything. I can take my people into exile and I can bring my people out of exile. Can any of your idols do either of those? And not only can I take my people into exile and bring them out of exile, but I can tell you 150 years before I do it that that's what I'm going to do. Can any of your idols tell the future like that? I am the God who is. I always have been. I always will be. These idols are the work of your hands. And God really is doing this through Isaiah because he doesn't want anyone to think that he is a reactive God. He doesn't want to think, oh no, my people are in exile. Now I have to react to their circumstances and bring them out. No, 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 150 years before this happened, I told you it was going to happen. I caused it to happen. And now I'm going to undo it. So that's all I can say about that. The other main focus of these nine chapters, which is the the biggest thing that we need to see is that these first nine chapters, 40 to 48, are all about God's deliverance of his people from Babylon. It's historical. This deliverance is described as a second exodus. So if you know anything about the book of Exodus, and God brought his people out of Egypt, these chapters basically say that God is going to do it again. This is the exodus part two, or the sequel. I I think it's worth our time to just show you this. So, so open your Bibles to chapter 40, verses 27 to 31. At the beginning here, you're going to see that the, 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 the Jews who are in exile, sometimes they're called Jacob, sometimes they're called Israel, sometimes they're called Judah. Just going to have to, I don't have time to sort that out for you. But they don't know that God is powerful enough to bring them out of exile. That's never happened before in the history of the world. When when somebody takes you into exile, you're taken there to die, and your, your posterity, your descendants are there to be assimilated. People don't come out of exile. And so here, God is responding to them and, and saying, why do you doubt that I can do this for you? Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. In other words, they're complaining, God doesn't care about us. He doesn't know about us. He doesn't do, he's not going to do anything for us. Have you not known? 
Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has might, he has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exalted. So that whole section there is all saying, do you think God's too weak to do this? Do you think he's growing too tired? Do you think that he would start a plan of redemption with his people and then just give them over to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians? He's not like us. He doesn't grow tired as we do. Then look at verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, this is not about God giving us the energy we need to get through the day. This is about God delivering a people from slavery or exile. The reason is, just listen as I go back to Exodus 19, verse 4. This is right before the Ten Commandments. God is about to enter into covenant with his people. And through Moses, he, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I'm going to bear you up like on eagle's wings again. And Steve talked about this last night, totally unplanned uh, to what I was doing today. But God is like a mother eagle carrying his people as they're trying to fly. In, in both uh, Exodus 19 and Isaiah 40, it's about a mother eagle carrying her eaglets, in the first instance, out of slavery. Fly, fly out of bondage. And here, out of exile, fly. And don't worry, you will not hit the ground because God is a mother eagle who will carry you out. That's our first indication that we need to be thinking Exodus imagery. Uh, Go over to Isaiah 43. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. We get to all this Redeemer language. I'm going to buy you back. That's why people love 40 to 55. Redeemer, salvation, comfort. I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm the exalted one. For your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. Again, we want to just notice there's this, who's the king of Israel? Is it this promised Davidic child or is it the Lord God? Exactly. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What does that remind you of? The Exodus and Pharaoh's chariots that got stuck in the Red Sea. And God is saying, I'm gonna do it again. But I'm not gonna do it the same way. I'm not gonna raise up another Moses and you don't have to float him down the Euphrates River. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'm gonna do the same thing, but I'm gonna do it in a new way. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers 
in the desert. Now, this ties us back to where we started. A voice cries, in the wilderness, make a way for God. And then it says that God will meet his people in the wilderness, just like he did in the book of Numbers. God's gonna walk with his people through the wilderness again, just as he did in the book of Numbers. One more. Uh, this is at the very end of this plateau, verse 48, or chapter 48, verse 20 and 21. So this is, this is the climax, the great conclusion of this historical plateau that we've been walking across, which is all about Exodus, second Exodus. Chapter 48, verse 20. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. Again, book of Numbers. He split the rock and the water gushed out. God is the God who brings water out of the desert. He is the God who, who redeems his people, saves them. Now look at this. Send it out to the end of the earth. See that in verse 20? Why does God send his people into exile? Why does God bring them out of exile? Because he wants the nations to behold the God of Israel and the grace and the power that are his. The important thing in this plateau of 40 through 48 is to see that God has promised 150 years before this ever happened that he is going to start over with his people. You see, exile, when, when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, that is final judgment. And if we want to start drawing parallels from the life of Israel to, to the life of, of uh, the Christian or, or humanity in general, the exile is final judgment. It's game over. You've broken covenant and my, my curses have fallen on you. And exile is a picture of hell because what is hell? Exile. So the fact that God would start over with his people is astounding. Now, this does not mean that God will bring people out of hell. Hell is the final exile. It's irreversible, irrevocable. But until we get there, until we get to the lake of fire at the end of the ultimate final judgment, God says, we're going to have a lot of do-overs until you get it. And hopefully, you will grasp who I am and who you are, and you will cry out for mercy and receive my grace. That's what this is all about. But if we don't understand that exile was game over for the old covenant, then we don't see. Once the people are in Babylon, we need a new covenant. Because the old covenant is broken. So, so Israel today, they have no hope under the old covenant. The old covenant is broken. The only hope for Israel and the nations is a new covenant. So this idea that God would start over after final judgment, it can't be lost on us. The grace of God. And he wasn't compelled to do this. 
But God is the God of second chances. He's the God of second chances for Israel, and he's the God of second chances for us. There's no one so far from his grasp. No one can say, oh, God has forgotten me. God can't save me. Who is it in your life that you feel is beyond the grasp and the grip of God? They're not, not yet. The other thing that we have no time to get into is that the Moses figure in this plateau is not a Jew. In fact, the word Messiah occurs one time in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah uh, 45, 1, I believe. Anyway, it's there a couple verses before or after. The section is 44.28 to 45.5, and there God says, my Moses is going to be a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. And God gives him a name. He calls him by name 150 years before he was born. This, I believe, is a rebuke against God's people. Look, you've blown it so severely. I'm not going to raise up a deliverer from your own people. I'm going to bring a foreign king, and he's going to be your David because you've disqualified yourselves. But in chapters 40 through 48, and through the experience of Israel, Cyrus is the servant that Israel needs. The use of a foreign king by God to deliver his people is proof of their failure to be God's servant. Just want to wrap up this plateau and we'll get to the mountain peak in this major section. Comfort, comfort my people. God promised to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, and he did it. God promised to send his people into exile, into Babylon, and he did it. God promised to deliver his people from captivity in Babylon, and he did it. What else has God promised to do? Well, yesterday we said he promised to raise us from the dead. He promised to swallow up death. He promised to gather people from every nation, which most of us, there may be some Jewish believers here, but most of us are Gentiles gathered from the nations. He's doing it, and he will do it. For the Lord has spoken. I mean, there is no other world system, philosophy, or religion that comes anywhere close to our God. Great and mighty is he, highly exalted, worthy to be praised. As beautiful as chapters 40 through 48 are, and and this could be a full sermon right there, we could stop, but I want to show you how this all fits together. These chapters are beautiful, but they actually, if you're tracking with me and you're thinking deeply, they actually create a massive theological problem. It's wonderful that a remnant of Israel is going to be delivered in a second exodus, and they're going to be given back the land. They're going to be given back Jerusalem, and they can rebuild their temple, and you know maybe they can reinstitute the Davidic monarchy. However, and this is the problem, if, if chapters 40 through 48 is God's solution, we've got a very big problem. What is the problem? What will prevent them from failing again? Yeah, God is the God of second chances, but 
How many times are we just going to see God's people repeat the same mistakes, receive the same judgment over and over and over again? So if God's solution is just 40 to 48, we're just back where we started and we can be sure that God's people will, will fail again. And that's what chapters 49 through 55 are all about. Can we just put that back up there? Just keep it up. We just want that to burn into our minds, the structure here. In chapters 40 through 48, God delivers his people from Babylon. But why are they in Babylon in the first place? Because they sinned. So Babylon and exile, that's the fruit problem, not the root problem. You can't just deal with the surface, the symptoms. God says, if we're really going to do something here, we need to get right to the root of the problem. If I'm going to deliver you, I need to totally deliver you. Not just out of captivity in Babylon, but I need to deliver you from sin. Until I deliver you from sin, we're just back in Babylon in 500 years. That's what 49 through 55 is. God says, there's a double deliverance happening here. I'm going to bring you out of Babylon, and I'm going to bring you out of sin. And that's why we have this little peak in 42, 1 to 9. 42, chapter 42, verses 1 to 9, really belongs thematically with 49 through 55. But at the very beginning, and chapter 41 is, kind of stands alone and introduces both deliverances. But 42, 1 to 9 clearly says, God knows at the outset that bringing his people out of Babylon is not enough. Cyrus can't be the ultimate servant to the nation because if he is, we're just back in exile. And so what we see here in 42, 1 to 9 is the first of four what's called servant songs. And, and we, we get in these songs the picture of a servant who will deal with Israel's sin problem. And if, if the servant deals with Israel's sin problem, as we're going to see, God says, that's too small a thing. If I'm going to send my servant to deal with Israel's sin problem, I'm going to deal with the, uh, the sin problem of all the nations at the same time. One uh, little note before we get into 49 through 55 in this major section, 41 through 55, there are two servants. And commentators, they, get, they, they really debate this a lot, but it's actually quite clear, I think. In 41 through 48, or 40 through 48, you have, um, in 40 through 48, you have Israel the nation as God's servant. And every time that servant is is described they're failing or in need of redemption. The only exception is the servant of 42, 1 to 9. That's clearly not Israel because he doesn't fail. He's filled with the Spirit and he does everything right. I want to read you a portrait of the nation of Israel as the servant because we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the servant to Israel and I want you to see the contrast. So open up to chapter 42, verses 18 through 25. 
hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. So God is calling his nation of Israel deaf and blind. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he doesn't hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? in whose ways we would not walk, in whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. This is all about the coming exile in 586 BC. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. In other words, Israel, as God's servant, is so blind and deaf that God even brings the climactic curse from Deuteronomy 28 on them, which is exile, and they still don't get it. They don't understand that they deserve to be in exile because of their sin. That's how failed Israel is as God's servant. So that's just one portrait, but throughout 40 through 48, that's the kind of portrait that we get of Israel. And that's in stark contrast to the servant that God will send to deal with the root problem, Israel's sin and the sin of the nations. So, Chapters 49 through 55. These chapters, as I said, recognize that more than Israel needs to be delivered from Babylon, they need to be delivered from their own sin. Therefore, in these chapters, God sends a servant to his failed servant, the nation of Israel, to accomplish this greater deliverance. Let's meet this servant As I said, the first of four servant songs is in chapter 42. Don't have time to read it. I commend it to you. Chapter 42, verses one to nine. That's where we're introduced to this servant. The next three servant songs are in chapters 49 through 55. And this is where we see Isaiah is making a transition from temporal deliverance from Babylon to Jerusalem to eternal deliverance from sin to righteousness. So you just have to see how those two things play out together. So go to chapter 49. This is how this mountain peak in this section begins. Chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This is interesting because Whenever in Isaiah you see coastlands, what that means is the ends of the earth. What Isaiah is about to say say is not just for Israel, it's for all the people of the world. I want all the people of the world to watch what I'm about to do. The Lord called me from the womb. So this is put right in the mouth of Israel's servant. We know who this is, Jesus This is Jesus speaking prophetically about himself by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before he took on flesh and became a man. 
The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. This is in contrast to Israel. It's you, not the nation, that's my servant. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This is not directed to the nation. In, in what, he, what is being said is you replace Israel as my servant or you fulfill Israel's mission as my servant. They failed. You will not fail. In whom I will be glorified. Verse four, but I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. And this is how we know for sure that he's not talking about the nation Israel. He formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. That Israel might be gathered to him. See, this is not about taking them from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is about taking them from sin to righteousness, from a spiritual exile from God to a right relationship with God. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, but it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Could it be any clearer? God says Israel needs a servant to atone for her sins. And while we're doing that, let's atone for the sins of the whole world. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servants of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Right here in verse seven, we see that the nation of Israel will reject their own servant, but foreign kings will recognize who he is and what he's done and be saved. The third servant song is in chapter 50, verses four to nine. We don't have time to read it. But in that song, we get stark contrast. If Israel as God's servant is blind and deaf, uh, this servant has an open ear and he has a tongue that is uh, loosed because he has learned. He has not been rebellious and yet he suffers unjustly at the hands of wicked men. And then we get to the clearest articulation of the mission of this servant and of the gospel in all of the Old Testament. This is how we're gonna end our time by looking at this beautiful servant song in Isaiah 52, 13 and following. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
Now pause there. If you're here on Sunday, what did we say about this language? He's high and lifted up and shall be exalted. In the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Throughout the book of Isaiah, only God is high and lifted up. Only God is exalted. Every other rival rebel power that tries to exalt itself will be chopped down, will be humbled. And here we're told that here this humble servant is the high and exalted one. He is the one that Isaiah beheld when he was called to be a prophet. And in John chapter 12, that's exactly what John says, that Jesus is the one that the prophet saw. That's the servant. Now, how are we to make sense of this? That, that God is the servant, and yet in, in seven, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 33, the king to come, who is going to be the answer to all of Israel's problems, who, who will reign over the nations and call all the nations to Zion, to Jerusalem, to worship God, is a, a descendant of David. So who is the savior? A descendant of David or the Lord God? The book of Isaiah never resolves that. Just allows that tension to hang there. But of course, we know the answer. The son of David is God. And the only way for Israel to be saved, the only way for any person, any Gentile, any pagan, anyone from the nations, any of us to be saved, is for God to do it. It's just stunning. 700 years before Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin. Let's start over. Verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He doesn't even look like a man. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so he shall sprinkle many nations. And the language there is sacrificial language. Sprinkle with blood. Day of atonement language. Sprinkle on the altar. He's going to sprinkle atonement by blood. It's inferred anyway. Many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Again, this is a rebuke against Israel. Israel was told they were supposed to understand. God showed them everything in their old covenant promises, and they didn't see. But foreign kings, they weren't told, but they'll understand. Who's believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Arm and hand in the book of Isaiah is about the power of God. Who has seen the power of God? 
Well, chapters 40 through 48 are all about the power of God, and, and you, we're going to see tomorrow the divine warrior. He, he is the most powerful, and he exemplifies, he maximizes his power by what I'm about to read you. You want to see the power of God? Look to his servant on the cross. That's the power of God. For he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. There I will divide with him a portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I don't think I need to explain much of that. This servant dies an offering for guilt. And yet while he is dying, he sees something that allows him to be satisfied in the midst of the anguish of his soul. What does he see? Verse 10, he sees his offspring. He sees us. His children. He sees that he shall prolong his days. That's a reference to the resurrection. He dies, and yet his days will be prolonged. So while he's dying, he knows that he will be raised from the dead. Verse 11, he sees that he will make many to be accounted righteous. In short, what he sees is he is doing something that Moses could not do. He is doing something 
that Cyrus could not do. He is delivering us from the true exile, which is the lake of fire. And that gives him satisfaction. See, God knows that delivering his people from slavery or captivity is one thing. Delivering his people from slavery to sin and exile in hell is something much grander. God's people broke the old covenant. So God says, fine. That was a surface level covenant anyway. I'm going to make with you a new covenant. And one of the servant songs says, I'm going to make you a covenant for the people to his servant. It's all about new covenant. It's about taking the promises and the shadows of the old covenant and saying, I'm going to get to the root of the problem. And no longer, after my servant comes, will my people struggle with sin. And no longer will I deliver my people over to captivity. My people will be righteous through my servant. My people will be holy and they will live with me. Coming back to where we started then, why did the gospel writers say that John the Baptist fulfilled Isaiah 40 verses one to five? Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Her iniquity is not pardoned by Cyrus. They're not taken out of the deeper, darker exile by Cyrus. And even when they get Jerusalem back, they're still in captivity to their own sin and the promise of future condemnation. But John comes along and says, it's time for the double deliverance. Yeah, Cyrus has restored the nation to the land, but now one is coming who is greater than Cyrus, and he is going to enact a greater deliverance. So make straight in the desert a highway for our God, the servant. Every valley shall be lifted up. The meek, those who have waited for the salvation of the Lord, those who have not contended with God, though they may have sinned, they are contrite in heart and grieve over their sin. Every valley will be lifted up. And every mountain and hill will be made low. Every exalted rival rebel power will be brought low. Even now, says John, the axe is at the root of the trees to chop down the haughty and arrogant, the self-exalted. And the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. And I really see that for us in the church. Maybe we're not valleys. Maybe we're not as meek as we should be. Maybe we're not mountains as arrogant as we once were. But we're uneven ground a mixture of holiness and sin nature, well, that uneven ground will be made a plain. And then look at this. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This is no metaphor. 
you and I and Israel and people from all nations will see the glory of the Lord. All flesh shall see it together. Really? God can do this? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. For Isaiah's original audience, all this comfort was future. Their exile was future. Their deliverance from exile was future. The incarnation of Christ was future. For us, there's still a future aspect. One day we will see Jesus Christ. You want to rightly order your life? Just know that one day you will be face-to-face with Jesus. Work backward from that reality. What do you want to do today, tomorrow, and the next day to prepare for that meeting? But for us, much of this comfort is in the past. Christ has come. The servant has come. Isaiah 53 is fulfilled. He has borne the iniquity of us all. So be comforted. We have what Israel in Isaiah's day did not have. Not deliverance from a political captivity, but deliverance from hell itself. The exile is over. We are children of God now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we will be like him, that is Christ. Why? Because we will see him as he is. The amazing thing for us Gentile Christians, if there's some Messianic Christians here, some Jewish Christians, I'm so glad. But most of us, probably Gentile Christians. The amazing thing is this, that God said, it's too small a thing for me to send my servant to do this just for Israel. While he's atoning for Israel, he might as well atone for the whole world. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, you are high and exalted and so is your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray uh, for each person here. Everyone here has unique needs, unique understanding of the gospel. And I pray that by your spirit, you would take my meager offering, the words that I've preached in the power and grace of your spirit, and by your spirit, minister to each person here according to what they need to hear from you today. Lord Jesus, thank you. You were without guilt, and yet you made yourself a guilt offering. And on you was laid all our iniquity and all our transgressions. You have saved from Israel and all the nations. And now we say, come, Lord Jesus. Bring your plan to its full consummation. In the name of Jesus Christ, our suffering servant. Amen.